friends, welcome to episode 15 of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. This episode features a chat with an entertainer that I admire very much, Sean Cullen. When I moved to Toronto in 1995, I scraped together what little cash I had and enrolled to study improv at the Second City, where a lot of my favorite performers had cut their teeth as well. Artists like John Candy, Eugene Levy, Martin Short, Andrea Martin, Rick Moranis, Catherine O'Hara, Dan Aykroyd, Jane Eastwood, Gilda Radner, Joe Flaherty, and Mike Myers, just to name a few. If I wanted to be a performer, I'd have to learn to stand on a stage and be in the moment. The years that I spent at the Second City Toronto were some of the best of times. I found a tribe of misfits to play with, many of whom I still call dear friends today. And when we weren't jockeying for a spot on the roster at the local drop-in improv stages around the city, we were out learning from some of the best improvisers in the country. And the one improviser we all wanted to see was Sean Cullen. Smart as a whip, quick like a cat, and fearless. Or so it appeared. A founding member of Corky and the Juice Pigs, Sean has toured the world appearing on stage at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival, multiple appearances at the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, and Montreal's Just for Laughs. Sean has appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, The Ellen Show, The Royal Canadian Air Farce, Last Comic Standing, and so on, and so on, and so on. Actor, writer, singer, improviser, comedian, and novelist, Sean makes the triple threats look like underachievers. So when the opportunity presented itself to sit down with Sean, I jumped on it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Sean Cullen. Hello, Sean Cullen. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm so pleased that you were uh, able to join me for the podcast. This is a, a real thrill. I wanted to uh, have you on the, uh, the, the show because um, uh, it's probably not best that a, that a host fanboys too much. But I, if you will give me a moment, I'll, I'll do a bit of that nonetheless. Uh, years ago, when I moved to Toronto in 1995 and uh, embarked on a career in show business, uh, one of the first things I did was I started studying at Second City, which is one of the best things I've ever done. And I would suggest any performer uh, uh, studies improv. And while I was doing that, when we weren't performing ourselves, we were going out to see a lot of shows. And one of the people that we always wanted to see was uh, Sean Cullen live. Because in those days, even back then, you were kind of at the, at the top of Mount Olympus of, mm. uh, of, of improvisers. Uh, so... I really enjoyed seeing you a number of times at uh, at the Rivoli. I got a chance to see your uh, uh, Wood Cheese and Children uh, special, your Comedy Now special, when you recorded that. Oh. So that's how I you first sort of got onto my radar was through improv and, and being a lover of improv and going out to see the best of the best. And so I had an opportunity to see you. So thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm so glad you uh, think that. Otherwise, I don't know why you'd be talking to me. <laughs> waste of time. One of my favorite bits that you used to do back in the day, and I don't know if you still do it these days, but if it was the only thing that you had done, I would still be a massive fan. And that was when you used to do food of choice. Mm -hmm. Food of your choice will end your life yes. tonight. Yeah, people yes. love that. I, you know, it gets the samey because I take suggestions from the audience, 
and they always give me the same thing: pizza, dough, yeah. <laughs> you know, tortilla chips, uh, you know, a hot dog. It's always the same: yeah. spaghetti, you know. So uh, it it gets it got a little boring for me, but I, it is a fun bit, and I really enjoyed doing it. I haven't done it in a long while. Yeah. It was one of those bits, too, that was kind of like watching um, somebody ride a bull. The further you got into it, the more people cheered and they could see that you were really, you know, you'd fight through those bits where you were, you know, trying to keep on on on, on track and, and, and amplify it. And, and then you'd go into that crescendo and people would follow you and they would just at the end, there'd be a triumphant finish and people would lose their minds. Well, I hope they didn't lose their minds. But the thing is, it's it's fun to I, I what I like to do is uh, bring people on a journey and they I think they do root for you to succeed. They want to laugh. People want to laugh. And uh, when they watch you, you know, struggling, but moving through it, they really enjoy watching that's great process for the audience. Do you, do you remember the moment or was there a moment when you figured out this is what I want to do with my life? Uh, that I still haven't figured that out. No, uh, I know. I'm still. Uh, I don't know. I've always had lots of interests, but comedy has been the most, uh, you know, time encompassing of my life. And uh, I never really thought I'd be a comedian. I, I always loved uh, Saturday Night Live. I loved the Pythons. I loved. Yeah. Uh, I loved Second City. It was big when I was, uh, you know, my formative years. And mm. uh, I used to love all of that sketch comedy, and I always dreamed of being that. And mm -hmm. I never was that. I've always been a kind of improviser, a kind of, uh, it's not really improvising. It's, I like to cut extemporizing. It's um, stream of consciousness. It's living in the moment sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and, but I, I never really planned on being a comedian per se. It's a funny thing because I do a lot of different things. I write novels for young adult mm -hmm. readers. I write, uh, I write a lot of animation. I do voice work. I do, uh, I, I do comedy. I do, I act, uh, and it, I don't feel like I'm fully in any of those circles. And I always feel like an outsider in every single one. Like, I don't really feel like I'm, I don't know. I grew up at a, I grew up in comedy at a time where it was dominated by standups and they all thought, the only thing that's real comedy is stand-up comedy with a microphone sure. and a guy. And I never felt like I belonged in that format, you know? So uh, it's been a problem, I think, being diversified like this to diffuse your impact in a lot of ways. It gives me lots of opportunities, but sometimes I think if I just did one thing really well, uh, I'd be way farther ahead in my life, but, uh, you know, I get distracted, I guess. But I, when did I start doing it? Yeah, I, I guess I started wanting to do it when I saw, I just remember seeing, I was 10, and my dad would let us stay up on Saturday night, and he would make pizza, mm -hmm. and then we'd watch Saturday Night Live, and that came on in 1975, and I remember the... Um, ads leading up to it going oh something crazy is happening on saturday night and right. it was george carlin was the first host and uh i just remember that first season with um uh chevy chase doing his falls every yeah. day every show he would fall do an elaborate fall 
And uh, right, sure. That that was when uh, Chevy Chase used to play his uh, iconic uh, President Gerald Ford character. Ger- Gerald Ford. He would always. Yeah. I just loved his. It was not anything like he didn't look like Gerald Ford. They did no makeup for him. It was yeah. just really funny. Uh, but I just saw that that's something I'd love to do. That's something really interesting to me, you know, and I always loved comedy. And I, for some, I loved just the more absurd, the better. Like for me, the Pythons are my, I guess would be my favorite. Yeah. You know, growing up, they were did like, you used to buy the albums. I did buy the albums, uh, tie and matching, uh, what, tie and matching handkerchief. Yeah. I have that one. Another Monty Python album, yeah. uh, a bunch of them. I love them. And, uh, they were just so crazy, you know, but they were really, you could tell they were really smart men doing stupid things. And I thought mm-hmm. that's, that's an amazing combination. I'd love to do that. Yeah. And we were lucky in Canada because we got both sides of comedy. We got British comedy. We saw a lot of British, like we saw Benny Hill and, you know, the uh, carry on movies and all of that British heritage stuff. And, yeah. And Monty Python and the goodies and uh, all of these things. And then we'd also get American comedy. And we kind of had a bridge between where we could appreciate the absurd, but be have this ability to be observational, you know, to observe. The, most comedy in America is, is observational. It's changing now, but it was at the time. It was like... Uh, you ever seen that? You ever seen somebody do that? Isn't sure. it weird how that guy does that? And uh, it was very, not I'm not going to say pedestrian, but it was very direct. It wasn't uh, absurd or, mm. or, or crazy. It wasn't insane the way yeah. like Monty Python was. But it was valid and good, you know. I love listening now to radio shows by... Uh, uh, Jack Benny's radio shows. They have a, a channel on Sirius XM that's all old mm. radio programs. The great George Burns and Gracie Allen. Um, just really funny. And and even people like Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, who are funny people, like, and they were great at delivering a line, you know? Mm. So that kind of more prosaic, I guess, would be the word. Straight ahead comedy, you know, I, I kind of mix it with, the the weird the absurd that I got from the British influence. Yeah, the, the it's it's interesting you say that the real the mix of comedy that uh, we we got to uh, enjoy as Canadians and I think the thing that young people who know Saturday Night Live today don't realize is how revolutionary Saturday Night Live was in the early days. SNL was really the first group of people, young people, doing comedy on TV because it had been all the older folks who had been doing it. And then all of a sudden, it was this renegade bunch of young people who were doing sort of counterculture uh, comedy. And that was uh, explosive and exciting to watch. Well, yeah. I mean, the, uh, before that, you'd have things like Don Kirshner's rock concert and mm-hmm. these weird kind of music shows. It was kind of a dead spot in in the television schedule. And when this, they said, just like, I think Lord Michaels has said that they just said, don't give me a time you don't care about. And yeah. then, then let me do whatever I want. Like mm-hmm. they got no oversight because no one cared about that slot. Exactly. And uh, 
it was just amazingly revolutionary. I mean, it was it was current. Every it was about things that had happened that week. They did it live. It, it was crazy. Like I mean, but it's not. It's you know everything old is new again. I mean, uh, television was live when it started. You know all those comedy shows like Milton Berle mm-hmm. and and sure. Sid Caesar's your show of shows. They were all done live. And they would rehearse all week and then do the show live. Uh, and it was just uh, the, the, the change in that uh, happened over the 70s, 60s and 70s. And then uh, they, this show live is insane that they came back with. And it, it was brilliant. I really, really loved watching it. And the music guests they would have. Everybody, uh, you know, nowadays, if you have a hit album, you are the musical guest. But back then, yeah. it was, they would have hosts like Elliot Gould. And, yeah. you know, he'd be like, what? And uh, they would pick whoever they wanted to be their musical guest. So you get mm-hmm. people like Leon Redbone and yeah. Sparks and uh, Peter Tosh and mm-hmm. people that were just amazing, but not like mainstream music stars. Uh, right. And it it was really interesting. Everything about it was interesting. And Devo as well was one of the musical guests. And you're just like, what is this going on? Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. And the little movies they'd make that, uh, you know, they were just great. Like, it was so different from everything that was going on. And I, I, I was just captivated by it and really looked forward to seeing it every week and uh, loved it so much. But I've always loved late night comedy. I love. I used to love watching Johnny Carson. My parents would let us stay up and watch Johnny Carson. I loved him, and I think yeah. David Letterman is my other favorite because he kind of carried on that tradition in a way. Like it's all gimmicky now. Like Jimmy Kimmel's very good. I think mm-hmm. I don't really like watching uh, the Tonight Show with uh, Jimmy Fallon. Like it's just mm-hmm. a bunch of games and a bunch of kind of self-aggrandizing moments for himself. And I, I, I don't buy it. I loved my, like when Letterman loved his audience, Johnny Carson loves his audience. And he, yeah. he, you know, David Letterman was cranky, <clears throat> cranky guy. Especially and, in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he still, you know, when he would go out of the audience and talk to them and do little, you know, contests and stuff, he loved talking to them. Like he was, genuinely enjoyed his audience and they weren't just uh, someone like come there to clap their hands for him. Like yeah. Jay, Jay Leno, I was on the show many times. Well, five times, I guess. And yeah. I just didn't really like the vibe, but it felt like it was this like tourist attraction, almost like come and touch uh, Jay Leno, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and be, and it was always, there was something insincere about it that I, I just didn't enjoy. And I always thought David Letterman and Johnny Carson were absolutely sincere. Well, I think uh, David Letterman's audience, too, was a youthful audience. And, and, and uh, Jay Leno was casting a much wider net. So I think mm-hmm. he had to appeal to a lot more people. And to the younger people, it lost its, its edge. Oh, for sure. Where we're... Uh, Letterman just zeroed in on his crowd. I'm, you know, he knew who his audience was and who he was talking to, I think. Well, what I, people don't remember, but he had a show in the afternoon 
in the uh, late seventies, I think it was like a weird afternoon talk show. Yeah, and yeah. it didn't last. It was a year. I think it went for a year. That was a season. Season, even yeah, and it was so yeah. weird for that to happen in the middle of the day. Like it was so weird. It was and like watching a vampire in broad daylight. It was crazy. <laughs> And uh, but he he honed a lot of what he came up with later on on this on his talk show, late night show that, you know, he he tried a lot of that stuff and uh, learned a lot from it, I think. Were you a kid who performed for family at home? Well, my mother used to make me sing for people. Okay, I used to sing and she would make me sing for my grandparents and I'd make up little songs about stuff like that. And or sing little Irish songs that they liked. and. She made me enter the Kiwanis Music Festival every year, that sort of mm-hmm. thing, and do little talent shows. I sang in church with a folk choir that was kind of weird, but it was fun. But it gave, yeah. you know, it gave me, I enjoyed doing that, you know. And then when I finally said, oh, I'm going to be a performer for a living, my mom was like, don't do, what are you, crazy? That's, you don't do that for a living. What did your parents do for a living? Well, my mother was a nurse. Mm-hmm. She's kind of an interesting, like, I mean, I find her interesting, her path. But she was a, grew up on a farm just outside of Kingston. Uh, very, mm-hmm. uh, you know, old Irish uh, immigrants, you know. And they were given, my great-great-great-grandfather was given some land as part of his benefits from being being in the army. And it was up okay. around Kingston. And he got that and made a farm out of it. And my mother and her four siblings uh, grew up there. And she left to go to high school. She wanted to pursue, and she went to Newburgh High School. She, she had to board and go to high school, so mm-hmm. she left home. And then she went and boarded at uh, Hotel Dew in Kingston, became a nurse, and then moved to Peterborough, where I grew up, and became a, a first an obstetrics nurse and then an emergency nurse. And then my father was like, he quit school after grade eight uh, and then went into, got a job in General Electric, which was a big, mm-hmm. a big uh, factory in Peterborough at the time. And uh, he was kind of one of those guys who grew up during the Depression where you had to learn to do everything. You know, you had to learn to do plumbing, you had to do electrical, you had to do bricklaying, fix your own car, everything like that, because Mm -hmm. you would never be able to pay for somebody to do it. So he was very good with his hands, but just worked in this factory and got paid very well. They both worked very uh, hard, long shifts. You know, they'd work 12 hours on, 12 hours off sort of thing. Yeah, but they were, uh, my mom loved the idea of entertainment, like people being able to do things like that. Mm -hmm. Like I think she grew up on a farm and her idea of amazing was if somebody could play the fiddle and they'd get, you know, come over to the farm and people would get together and they'd have a night of music or whatever, and that would be amazing. So she loved that. And my father, I think, really enjoyed watching Saturday Night Live with us. He's a very quiet guy, but he, Mm -hmm. I think he enjoyed it. And I think he liked comedy as well. But um, uh, I don't know. I, I, they, I, 
you know, they were very working class people. They were very, uh, my mother was pretty well educated. My dad, not so much. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they just very working class. Uh, I just worked hard. You know? Yeah, I'm sure that a, in a, a career in show business would have seemed like something that people from very far away might be able to work, do or whatever, but uh, sure. that, that, that's not what we do. Well, they loved, they loved, say, they loved watching Johnny Carson. They loved the people yeah. who come on, the comedians, whatever, like that. But they could never imagine why would you do that with your life? Yeah. Like it's, and the struggle of it. Like when all of my friends are like graduating from university and starting in a bank or making money. And I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, can I borrow $10? You know, I, it was kind of, it's tough at the beginning. And, uh, you know, you're thinking maybe I did something wrong, but it's like any business. If you start your own business, it takes 10 years to really get it, get your stuff together and make it yeah. work. It takes so, a lot of borrowing $10. Yes. Well, my mom, well, I think my mom finally got that I was doing well when I got, uh, of all things, a Butterfinger commercial where I didn't even speak in the commercial. I just ran up and grabbed a Butterfinger and ran away. And that was it. But she saw yeah. it on the TV and people called her and said, is that your son in the Butterfinger yeah. commercial? So that yeah. may have validated everything that I did. Yeah. Funny the way that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so what happens when SCTV comes along? Well, what I think it did, it started this idea that you could do it. Like you could be from, like they shot it in Edmonton. It was very rough and ready and, you know, seat of the pants, but they were doing it and they were making it work. And it made, I think, lots of people who are into comedy uh, look at it as a possibility, like there was a chance that it could be done, that you could have a career in comedy and uh, become relevant in a big way. So that was very helpful. And uh, also seeing Jim Carrey, who, you know, was a local Toronto guy, uh, go from doing clubs in Canada to becoming an enormous star in America. So it just uh, gave everybody this idea that it, it was possible, you know, that there was a, there was, it wasn't futile. What you were doing was, uh, could be valid. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people started to do it. And now there's such a rich uh, heritage of sketch and stand up in Canada. And, uh, you know, I think it comes down to those two successes in a big way. Why do you think it is that Canadian comics have always done well in the U.S.? Is it that we have a, a unique perspective on their culture because we live outside of the bubble or that, that echo chamber? I think it's absolutely true uh, that we have a, an objective view of the American culture and American politics, American life. You know, we have a lot in common, but we are different uh, in some very basic ways. Like, for example, you know, whole gun situation like in Canada it's not that hard to buy a gun really you know you can go right. for two weeks two weekends to do a course and then you can buy a gun but mm-hmm. people don't have them people don't buy them they just don't need them and that that mentality just isn't there where you know if you ask most Americans we we buy guns to protect ourselves from the government 
is what mm-hmm. one of the uh, one of the big answers. And I just say, wow, that's um, I never really felt that need, you know. Uh, so that's just one of the many examples of how we have a different viewpoint. I think Canada, you know, we have a we have a very good way of life. We have a good economy. We have a good uh, standard of living. But we don't have that kind of uh, clout that Americans have, that, that the American culture has. Uh, this uh, world-spanning uh, influence on people. And what we do as a country doesn't have the influence or the effect that what America chooses to do uh, has around the globe. So we have to learn about the rest of the world. We have an awareness about the rest of the world that I don't think America has. Like when America, I don't think most people knew where Iraq was or Afghanistan was until they had to invade them, you know? Right. And, but in Canada, you do have an awareness of the world. You do, you're affected by it in a much greater way. In America, you're your world is America for the most part. There's no reason to look anywhere else. It's so big. The culture is so big. The economy is so big that you don't need to uh, really care about the rest of the world. And I think Canada has to. And so we have a broader sense of uh, humanity, of uh, culture, of uh, differences of other people. And mm-hmm. I think that when we bring that to bear on comedy, uh, the difference is quite striking, you know, that we can have a broader frame of reference than American comics can. And when you go down to America, when I first went down, I was just like, here's a guy, like, well, I'd go to the, the improv or the comedy store and uh or the comedy factory and you just say wow the comedy here is so limited in scope you know people just talk about themselves and or about i'm a hispanic uh and Mm -hmm. you know this is what my life is and we just in canada just don't have that luxury we have to have a broader frame of reference i think it's changing now i think it's becoming more like that up here but when i first started we were in a transitional period, I think, between giving over. Uh, Britain was our primary focus. All of our cultural institutions come from there. Uh, royalty, crown uh, corporations, uh, socialism, and and uh, we're slowly drifting into the American sphere. And so we we would have both, you know, Monty Python. We'd love that. I, I loved it and grew up on it in the goodies and all these other British comedy influences. Mm-hmm. But uh, and we'd also be have access to sitcoms and All in the Family and, and Saturday Night Live when it started and uh, um, all of those kind of all of those kind of American comedy influences. So we're kind of a hybrid. Yeah, it gives us a broader frame of reference, as I said earlier, and helps us in a way to have a deeper understanding maybe of uh, the comedy world. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you'd lived in the U S for a number of years and uh, you believe you, uh, you told me that you had a place in Los Angeles for a bunch of years. How did you enjoy that experience? Well, I loved it. You know, I really love California. The, the, 
great thing about California is that you just step out the door and it's amazing. The weather is mm-hmm. always beautiful. It's every day is pretty much the same. Um, it's so different. You know, I come from Toronto where you walk places to, you know, the, it's so much more condensed or like the difference is say in New York, if you come from New York, you walk everywhere and you walk by a place like a restaurant, you go, that looks like a cool restaurant. I think I'll go in. Yeah. In America, you, you're driving everywhere. Everything's uh, by appointment. And you drive along, you're driving in your car, and you won't drive by somebody's, oh, that looks like a nice restaurant. I'll probably never go there because I'm just not going to stop. You know, So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a different world. It's much more insular, uh, Los Angeles. Like uh, you have to have friends, like and you have to make appointments to keep you those those friends, and you have to be connected. It's easy to just drift and be alone. And and the one thing I noticed was time passes without you noticing it. Like you can be there for five years, and it seems like you just got there because there's no seasons really. Mm-hmm. Every day is the same. Uh, there's no kind of urgency. There's, it's kind of a state of limbo. There's not a lot of paying gigs in Los Angeles unless you're in television. And it's, it gets kind of depressing because I love to work and I love to work all the time. And there I'd had deals with CBS and I had deals with other networks and much of it just involved sitting around waiting for them to say, come in and read for this. And so you'd just spend all year just being at their disposal. I mean, they pay you good money and everything, but it's not as fun or engaging or enriching as like doing stand up all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was very different. And yeah, it's funny. I had a lovely house there. It was a little bungalow and in the backyard there were, lemon trees and orange trees a grapefruit tree uh, a peach tree in the front yard we were palm trees it was really lovely but uh you know i wasn't working very much uh, i was just being paid to sit at home so mm-hmm. not as much fun as you'd think well one of the things that you mentioned to me about that experience was that you found that you were when you were speaking to executives that you uh they often really appreciated your talent and told you so but they didn't know quite where to place you they didn't they they didn't know you know who 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 you would appeal to or what kind of character you could play or they you didn't fit fit into the paradigm i guess that's exactly true i mean i i would come i do music i do characters i do stand up it's kind of like a cabaret show and they're they're so used to just going hey there's tim allen he talks about tool time well he talks about you know, men and tools. Uh, perfect. We'll do a show. And or Ray Romano has got a very specific point of view and they can say, here he is, a sports writer, lives with his wife, you know, and is kind of uh, and just a guy. Uh, Kevin James, same thing. Uh, King of Queens, a very simple yeah guy with a hot wife who for some reason stays with him even though he's she seems to think he's an idiot like that's the paradigm of america uh, at the time when i was down there like, i tried to write i wrote two uh different pilots uh one for cbs was uh, i would i was an inner city priest who'd been brought from a very 
bucolic background into like an inner city situation. And, and, uh, you know, we did that and we just thought this is a different kind of workplace. It'd be fun. Mm -hmm. And, and they were like, and what's his name? Um, Les Moonves, who was the head of CBS at the time came and we did a, a reading of the script for him with, uh, Tony Shalhoub and John Cryer and, Mm-hmm. Uh, me and just like amazing people. And wow. he listened to it and said, you know, I don't really like that idea, but I like him. He's kind of like the next Kevin James. And I was like, no, nah, I don't think I'm <laughs> I like that at all. I, I've got a lot of things that are, I want to do and this doesn't really address all of them. And yeah. sometimes I thought, you know, it'd be easier if I just had one thing I was good at and just focused on that it'd be a lot easier for people to slot me and then I'd get uh, a sitcom and it'd all work out great. You know, but the second script we wrote was with Alan Zweibel, who was a writer for Saturday Night Live and wrote uh, Gilda Radner's Broadway show. And we wrote a show called Hero of the Falls, which was a script about a guy who's a wedding photographer who has grander ideas that one day he'll be a real film director and he uh is given these it's strange but he's given rings he lived in niagara falls it was called legend of the falls right and he was uh he's given these the wedding rings to do a kind of video montage with the falls in the background and he puts them in his windowsill on little stands and he's shooting it and a monkey all of a sudden comes in and steals one of the rings and then disappears so he's in trouble. And it turns out the guy, the father of the bride is a mafioso and he's going to be in trouble if he doesn't replace the ring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it just kind of a weird, <laughs> just a little odd. And uh, <laughs> once again, you know, Les Moonves said, you know, I just don't like monkeys. Like he has a real dislike. <laughs> of so that really put the kibosh on that story. So, you know, it's just, so capricious and strange and you know and i don't know everybody thinks the way i speak is really bizarre in america they think i have this accent that is not accessible and you know they asked me if i could just speak like a normal american and you know right stuff like that and i'm just like well how about we find something where this all makes sense yeah but it's a very weird place trying to figure out what they want and, you know, have a kind of happy medium of giving them what they want and also still doing what you want. And it's, it's hard to strike that balance, you know? Yeah. But uh, since then, I mean, one thing that has changed is streaming and stream, streaming has certainly allowed for more unique uh, broadcasting or, or maybe we could even call it narrow casting. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, look at what's happened with Schitt's Creek and, and what they've managed to accomplish, you know, you know being a, a CBC show that, uh, that uh, mm-hmm. you know, got picked up by Netflix and, and, and how that has really opened up things for, for the people who are involved in that production. Oh, yeah, for sure. But the thing is that people cite that and say, oh, there's – Shit's Creek and it got on Netflix and it's now, you know, an American won all these Emmys, mm-hmm. but it had Eugene Levy and, uh, you know, Catherine O'Hara on board, which are really bankable stars. Yeah. If it didn't have that, I don't know if CBC would have supported it as much as they did or gotten out mm-hmm. of the way and let them really just make the show they wanted to make. And same thing people say about, you know, working moms, what a success, you know, but 
it was kind of bankrolled by her father, you know, uh, Ivan Reitman really got behind it and it said, do this show to the CBC. And they said, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people always cite, you know, kids in the hall. It's like, this is like a CBC huge success. But the only reason it was on, I, I just think it was so uncharacteristic of the CBC. They were just, they were, Lauren Michaels came to them and said, I'm doing this show with these guys and we'll have um, to broadcast it here and we'll broadcast it in on HBO in the States. So it had that kind of weight behind it. And that's hard to get in Canada. There's, it's hard to, I think it's becoming more like that in Canada. You know, I think, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just have to find the, you know, the bankability pro- factors of it. But, uh, you know, it's funny because I look at the American, like I look at the world of sitcoms and stuff like that now and comedies. And it's like, you already have to be famous to get a sitcom. You already have to be right. famous to get on TV, you know. Uh, it's all these movie stars who don't want to travel around and do movies. They want to be at home and do sitcoms, you know. It's a great sure. life. Drive into the studio from your home and then, you know, you do a table read. And then the next day you get the rewrites and do another table read. And the next day you just get up and walk through it. And then the fourth day you shoot it, you know. It's, it's not a bad life. No. <laughs> No, it's a really good life and you can get paid really well and you can stay in your house. It's changing a lot, certainly with streaming services because people are more, I think the, the edge the, the, the comedy palette in America has become a lot broader. It used to be quite narrow and, you know, prosaic. I, I think Americans, as you can see in politics, really distrust intelligence and distrust, um, you know, educated or like eggheadedness. And uh, also as a result, you had basically lots of sitcoms that were just repeats of, you know, the honeymooners, you know, a a guy, kind of a schlubby guy with a hot wife who's out of his league. (laughs) And she's always picking on him. And he's like, one of these days. And uh, you just go, why why is she staying married to this moron? Mm. That's what I think all of Americans look at each other as, you know, I can relate to that. And, uh, yeah. and the, uh, like I, I was in, uh, the American version of faulty towers, but I got to the set to do my episode and it was like, this is the most beautiful hotel I've ever seen <laughs> that you built. It's like beautiful. And the location of the hotel was on the Pacific Coast Highway overlooking the the sea and it was gorgeous and you're just like you've taken away everything about it that made it what it is, like this failing hotel with miserable people in it who hate each other. And yeah. Americans for them, everything is fantasy. Like television is fantasy for the most part. And like network television is definitely fantasy. Like we want to see beautiful people doing things. Like friends for me, it was kind of like, oh, geez, now they figured out that beautiful people can do comedy. So now we have nowhere else to be <laughs> ugly people at all in on television, you know? And it's just uh, like, you know, on, on Friends, they were like, all, they all lived in these beautiful Manhattan apartments, huge Manhattan apartments, penthouses. And you're like, how do you do this? You know, but Americans completely accept it, you know? Yeah. 
So yeah. it's very strange. Or like uh, Sex in the City. You're like, how does uh, the main character, she, she writes a column for a newspaper mm-hmm. and uh, she can afford a Chanel suit every day, you know, and her, her <laughs> it's like, do you know how much columnists make? Even for like the New York Times, not very much, not like that kind of money. You know, it's crazy, but people accept it, you know, and that's the, that's the baseline that they want. But streaming and, and um, a, a cable, I guess you'd say, give you more than like you can have baskets. You can have, uh, you know, very weird uh alternative like eastbound and down you can have uh very niche and and strange things you know that people will can seek out and people are people television has become more seeking out what you want right instead of being dictated to you what you're going to see and that's what network television is network it relies on sponsorship so they have to have a certain moral code that they can't defy but when you go to cable or Netflix, you're paying them and subscribing. So you're giving them permission to push the envelope and push the boundaries. So it's exciting. And you can find things that are very weird. And finally, I think that's been the thing that's broadened the American palette more than anything. Sure. I think, yeah, and HBO had a, a big part in uh, in opening up that as well with, uh, you know, a sub- home subscription and uh, not having a to kowtow to advertisers. I mean, you see that all the time on, uh, on Bill Maher's show, for, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and John Oliver as well. I mean, they say stuff all day long on, on, on those episodes that, uh, that you would not be able to say if you, uh, you had big uh, corporate sponsors. Well, even not, like in those are very, uh, what would you call it? They're nonfiction, like not yeah. scripted, but I mean, the one that for me really blew the doors off was, uh, um, uh, Jerry Shandling doing, uh, yeah, Gary Shandling's the Larry Sanders show. And that like had a gay character that wasn't just like, he was a real person, not a caricature of a gay person. Uh, it had weird situations and it was really, you know, pushed the envelope and, you know, it was almost a mockery or a parody of network television, you know? Yeah. So that could only be done on HBO. So that, that's uh, it's absolutely true that that kind of gave producers and creators permission to push the envelope. Yeah. Well, you're one of the few people who's uh, had the opportunity to have a, uh, an, an eponymously uh, named show, uh, the, the Sean Cullen show you did on the CBC. What did you learn from that experience? Well, that people don't like weird stuff in Canada. I mean, it's <laughs> not their fault. Uh, the pro- the problem. One thing that I learned was that you. I really. I wrote all six episodes, and mm-hmm. they. I wrote them too long for network TV. Like they all had to be twenty two minutes long, and I wrote them way too long. It was my first real time writing for television, and you know, so we had to edit them down from you know forty minutes to twenty two, and. It suffered. The show suffered because of that. And also, uh, it was just too weird, too much weird. You know, I think if I did it again, I'd start very prosaically with weird elements 
and teach people what to expect, you know, pull them along with us uh, and not expect them to jump on board with everything right away. I think you have to educate your audience a little bit in Canada. People always ask me, you know, what is, what is your, uh, why are Canadians, why do they have such a great sense of humor? And I say, why well, it's not necessarily true. If you see what comedy is done on Canadian television, you right. know, we're still doing like 22 has been on for what a hundred years. Mm-hmm. It's basically just putting on hats and wigs and, you know, regurgitating what happened in the news that week. It's not really reinventing the wheel. It's been, it's when like we had uh, air fires for many years and you're just like, that's so like 1960s, mm-hmm. 50s uh, kind of template for comedy. And it's easy though, because the audience watches it and they go, oh, I recognize this because I watch the news. And so I'm, I, I get the joke and I'm, I have a good sense of humor because of that. You know, you can't really, you don't really <laughs> challenge them to come up with anything to push them out of their comfort zone, you know? Right. Uh, and we, because it's a taxpayer money, uh, CBC, and I'm saying CBC just because they're the only one, really the only ones who make any scripted television in Canada for the most mm-hmm. part. And they have the mandate to, take, to tell Canadian stories, you know? So that they have to appeal to everyone in the whole country because the yeah. whole country is paying for them. So my show was so weird and they got tons of pushback from people saying, I don't get it. This stupid, why is this money being wasted on this stupid show? I'm like, but if we'd taken, if we'd been able to build our audience and pull them along with us, I think it would have been a lot different. And, but I think I learned a lot from it. By the time you learned all that stuff, though, you know, you were canceled. I remember going into Slaku Klimku. This is the typical. But Slaku Klimku was the head of comedy at that point, the head of programming. And mm-hmm. he had come from news. That was his background. But then he was in the head of all programming, skip, scripted, comedy, everything. And he just had me in and said, you know what? Comedy's supposed to be funny, and this just isn't funny. And I said, "Oh, in your last experience as a comedian, you don't think it's funny." Like, and, and mm-hmm. I just, uh, was like, "Well, I don't know how seriously to take that. I, I can't take it very seriously because I've been doing it for twenty years, and you haven't." So, yeah. Uh, but at that point, like, I learned a lot, and I think I would have done things differently. But and uh, if we'd had a second season, but you don't get a second chance, you know. And I've been trying and pitching and doing all kinds of things, trying to get back on there. And uh, we'll see. Maybe one day I'm working on a new project. Maybe that'll happen. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the things that you were saying that were a detriment to you are the things that are on the stage are your your selling points, talking about having a different viewpoint or a different uh, you know, a way of seeing the world or calling it weird or unusual or whatever, and then, and then being able to stretch pieces out longer than you would. Uh, normally for an, an audience that maybe has a short attention span is what's had you filling theaters. But I guess it's a big difference is filling a theater uh, that has X, you know, specific number of seats and then being able to grow an audience. Um, and, and if you don't get a shot, if you don't get more than a season, it's, it's hard to do that. I mean, it used to be, especially if you look at the music business, it used to be 
that uh, a record company would uh, would decide to promote an artist and they would give them five albums before they decided mm-hmm. whether or not they were going to drop them or move on. And these days, you kind of get one shot. If you can't get lightning in a bottle in that one album, then then they move on to the next thing. But, you know, how do you how do you learn anything in that short amount of time? Absolutely. You know, and I did. What's funny is comedy is a strange thing because I think the longer you do it, the better you get at it, and the more deeply you understand the medium and the craft. And like Seinfeld didn't get on television until he'd been doing comedy for 20 years, you know, sure. 25 years. And he was the biggest comic that wasn't on TV ever. And so they gave him a show. And even that, his first season was not well liked by anybody. But he was Jerry Seinfeld. So they gave him a second season and it's, yeah. they figured it out. Um, well, Cheers was a failure in its first season. Uh, uh, you know, it didn't do very well at all, but they stuck with it. Oh, for sure. And it, and, it, and it gained an audience. Yeah. And you just have to, people have to get to know the characters. And in sitcoms, they have to get to know the characters because sitcoms are like, these are my friends I'm going to meet every week. And uh, I get, you have to get to know them and start to f- see the patterns and feel their, you know. And as a writer and as a performer, you have to start to figure out what the most effective ways of presenting these characters and their points of view and developing their background to make people care about them, you know, mm-hmm. very personal. So comedy is very personal. That's why it's hard to do and hard to take it to television because you don't have an audience with you to sense and empathize with and feel their energy and move with it and give them sure. what they want in the moment. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, you have been uh, involved in over the years is uh, literature. Does that offer you an opportunity that the stage and television uh, didn't? Well, yeah. I mean, I love books and I've always loved books. I love writing. And uh, it's been a huge part of it. Reading has been a huge part of my life. Yeah. And I, well, I was appro- approached by someone from Penguin, who is the editor of children's entertainment at that time at Penguin. And she said, my son loves your radio show on CBC. I just did this replacement show during the summer. And mm-hmm. it was just me rambling and then playing music I liked. And she said, would, would you be interested in writing books for someone around his age? And I said, well, I can give it a try. I'd love to. So what's hard about books is it's finite and frozen on the page, you know. Uh, you're constantly second guessing yourself and you're, it's a lonely project. You're always by yourself and, um, and your audience doesn't respond right away. And you probably won't get a response for like a year after you finished writing, you know? So it's very different. And it was a good experience because it taught me discipline and how to stay at it and write every day and get to the end. And that's just the biggest part, you know, it's the hardest part. It's just starting and then getting to the end. And uh, that's, you know, most people say, oh, I'd love to write a novel. I, I've got a novel idea and I'd, I'd like to do it. And I said, well, are you writing it? Yeah. Just sit down. That's the hard part. Sit down and write right now. And they're like, oh, it's just hard. And I say, yes, it is. <laughs> so, uh it was very, uh, it's a very good experience and uh, absolutely amazing. And I'd like to one day develop the books into something, a television project if I could. But 
it was the most rewarding thing to see my book on a shelf in a store, in a bookstore, or on a library shelf. It was one of the most amazing things. Yeah. And you, you wrote, so far you've written two books uh, for uh, two of your children. When you're writing those books, were you writing specifically thinking of them? I started writing the first book uh, right after my son, uh, my, my wife and I had split up, and my son and my wife my ex-wife had moved down mm-hmm. to Los Angeles because I had a house there and they took that house and I took the one in Canada. And uh, I was missing him. So I decided I would write this book and it's called Hamish X and mm-hmm. my son's name is Hamish. And so it was really for him, you know, a story for him. And I wrote three books in that series. Uh, and then I married again and I had two more kids and one of them's name is Brendan. He's my oldest, uh, second oldest son. And he, so I started writing a book for him, well, but the main character's name is Brendan and he's a, a human. He lives in a human family, but he finds out mm-hmm. he's actually a fairy, you know, that his fairy, and then his fairy family and his human family kind of collide and strange things happen. And uh, now I'm working on a new book for my daughter, Cleopatra. And so uh, I'm working on a science fiction story for her called Cleopatra Crash Mm. Saves the World. So it's a fun science fiction thing. It's a bit of a different departure for me and different subject matter, but I'm just trying to get it out there. And Yeah, and that's a pretty cool legacy as well for your, your kids to have that and hold on to. I'd like them to think that I was thinking of them. Um. So it, it it seems like you've done it all. I mean, in terms of uh, in, in terms of uh, show business, uh, uh, is there is there any artistic avenue you haven't explored, or something else that you'd like to do, or uh, what what's uh, uh, what's what, what does the future hold for for Sean Cullen? Well, I've written a couple of screenplays that I'd like to get produced or at least read by someone who could produce them. I'm working on that. Uh, I'd really like to have some of my books adapted for mm-hmm. uh, television, and I'd like to get a, a, a successful television project on the air. That would be really wonderful. So I really just want to work <laughs> until I'm dead, basically. Keep going and always be busy. That, that's just, you know, the good thing about having so many interests is you can just flip as one thing kind of goes cold you can move to another one and stir that up and keep keep busy you know so i i just like to be busy yeah i think retirement is something that people sort of pine for because a lot of people don't like their work if you do like your work if you love your work yeah. uh why retire exactly it's a it's a joy when it's going well so i really would love to keep doing it until no one wants me anymore we'll see well, I wish you all the success with your future projects. Like I said to you before, uh, I really appreciate the work that you've done. And uh, when I first got into, well, specifically into uh, improv, uh, my friends and I were always clamoring to get tickets for your shows because uh, when we looked around at all the people who were doing the same sort of work that we wanted to do, you were at the top of the heap. So uh, I, I, that's kind of where I first got my appreciation for your work. So it's been fun to watch you. And I, and I look forward to seeing what you come up with next. Okay. Well, it's very kind of you. And thanks very much, David. Thanks for talking to me. Have a wonderful, uh, wonderful life. You too. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, Sean. Take care. My thanks to Mr. Sean Cullen for spending time with me and for sharing his cool story. Thanks again to Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all of the other jingles and stings that appear on the show. 
Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And finally, thank you for listening. Until next time, Pura Vida. Everybody's had some adventures. Everybody's had a few close calls. Everybody's got a story. What's yours?